in the great prologue to the Gospel of John, John writes about the true light coming into the world. And in John chapter 1, verse 10, of this true light, John writes, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those were, who were his own did not receive him. In many ways, our passage this morning in Luke chapter 4 is a commentary on those words. Take your Bibles and turn to that place in Luke chapter 4 and find verse 14. Luke chapter 4, 22 through 30, our passage this morning is a fulfillment of Of these words, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. This is a telling passage. This is a really convicting passage. It's a sad passage. It's a sad passage. This passage is is really the first account of the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ recorded uh, by Luke, where Jesus comes to his own, his own hometown, the city of Nazareth, and he is rejected by his hometown. And we remember that Jesus comes to his hometown. He comes doing basically one thing, Jesus the preacher. Jesus comes preaching the Word of God. And as he comes, the preacher gives an exposition of Isaiah 61, the first couple of verses of Isaiah 61. He reads the Word, and they stand. And then he gives... Whoa. Technical difficulties. And then he gives an exposition of that text, an explanation of that text, and then he gave a very pointed application of that text. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your midst. He's quiet. Let's read about it again as we, in verses 14 through 21, Look at his exposition again. For those of you who weren't here last week, see Jesus the preacher and his first sermon recorded in the book of Luke. And then we're going to find out, starting at verse 22, our sermon today, the response of the people, the exposure. So first the exposition, and then the exposure of the hearts of men by the truth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 14. Turn to Luke chapter 4. And find verse 14. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, 
where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That was his first exposition. Now our passage this morning, what's the response? Verse 22, And all were speaking well of him, and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went on his way. Jesus exposes who we really are through his word. Let me say that again. Jesus exposes who we really are through His Word. And we expose our hearts. We really do. We expose our hearts by how we respond to His Word. Our response to Jesus exposes our hearts. It really does. It was true in Nazareth over 2,000 years ago that the truth of Christ exposed their hearts. And it is true for us today that the truth of our Lord Jesus Christ exposes our hearts. How? How does the truth of Christ 
back for the people of Nazareth, and especially as we had just right now apply this to our own lives and hearts, how does the truth of our Lord Jesus Christ, his first sermon, how does that expose our hearts? Three ways. In this passage, we are exposed, like the people of Nazareth, in three ways in this passage. First, you have an outline if you want to follow along. Number one, we are exposed by our words. We are exposed by our words. Look at verse 22. Jesus opens up the scroll of Isaiah in the synagogue. They're at church. They're in the synagogue. He opens up the scroll. They all stand up. So reverent. So very reverent. They all stand up. Hear a good sermon from Isaiah 61. A really good exposition of the text. Then they have a bomb dropped. This, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your midst. How do the people respond? Would they respond like the rest of the villages in Galilee who praised him for his message and were literally glorified him? How would they respond? How would we respond to the preaching of Jesus? Well, their initial response were words of amazement. Number one, their first response were words. They started with talking. That's initially how it works. Words of of amazement. Look at verse 22. And all, not some, and all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And so there seems to be initially this really positive response, uh, right, by their words to the preaching of Jesus. I mean, it makes perfect sense. Let me tell you something. No one, not Spurgeon, not Paul, not anybody, no one could preach like Jesus. Literally, the text says that this great, gracious words were, were spilling out of his mouth, were coming forth. What a great metaphor. Just the honey-tongued teacher from Nazareth. This man could preach like no one else. He preached with authority, not like the scribes who quoted everybody and told stories. He preached the word with authority. He preached with clarity. He preached with utmost practicality. He connected. He drove it home. No one could preach like Jesus. There were gracious words that were falling from his mouth. And the text says they were speaking well of him. And that Greek word, one lexicon says, means initially they were affirming him in a supportive manner. They were speaking well of him in affirmation. But... Their words betray them because their words of amazement turn secondly to words of offense. Words of offense. Many, if not most, who were amazed at the teaching of Jesus initially reconsidered. They reconsidered very quickly. They took offense at him. 
wait a minute, hold on, wait a minute here. This is Jesus. This is Joseph's son. We know his mom, we know his dad, we know his siblings. We remember him when he was a little boy, always sitting in the third row of this synagogue. For crying out loud, he helped Joseph build the rocking chair that I sit in. This is Jesus. We know him. He's nobody. He's from a poor family. He's nobody from nowhere. Wait a minute. He's saying this is Joseph's son? He's saying that he's the promised Messiah that Isaiah spoke about? Is this not Joseph's son? And they took offense at him. And, and Matthew's account of a, another visit to Nazareth, don't turn there, in Matthew 13, kind of fills out what's all underneath that little phrase. Is this not Joseph's son? That's not mere curiosity. That is unbelief. That is the beginning seed of rejection in his hometown. Is this not Joseph's son? Because in Matthew chapter 13, here we're in Nazareth again, we get a window into their thought process. And they said this in Matthew 13 in Nazareth, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters, are they not all with us? Where did this man get all of these things? And the text says in Matthew 13, and they took offense at him. They took offense at him. They had marveled at his words, but they weren't willing to receive who he was. They took offense of him, listen, because he was so ordinary. It was just Jesus Just mere Jesus. Now there's more here. They weren't willing, we'll find out, to be put into the category of the Isaiah 61 passage. That was offensive to them. And it still is offensive to us today. They were not willing to be put into the category of poor in spirit, of spiritually blind, of oppressed, of captive. They're just... Fine. How fast does it take <laughs> the response of people to go from amazement to offense? How fast? How fickle are we? How quickly do we turn? Jody, I'm going to have to have you come up and help me. How fast do we turn from rejoicing in the good to switch to criticism? Can you please hook this up to my collar for me? Thanks. And this is coming off. Okay. This doesn't count for my sermon time, so enjoy. It never counts to my, it doesn't count. Do you put this on your seat or your shirt? Somewhere, yeah, somewhere that takes the, thank you. Oh, that's so much better. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's tangled up. Okay, I'm a tangled mess up here. Why did they reject Jesus? As the old proverb goes, 
Familiarity breeds contempt. I went to high school with a guy who I thought, I'll just be honest, I hope he's not going to listen to the sermon. I thought he was a little awkward. Um, socially, he didn't connect very well. He wasn't the cool athlete type. And sometimes, frankly, he was a little hard to get along with. But he grew up, and God granted him some pretty good wisdom and insight into the Word of God, and had granted him a, a quite successful and, and frankly, thriving ministry. And in my flesh, there was a strong tendency, as I had grown up with him, to write him off completely. Just a little picture of what happened there. Now, it's much deeper than that, but that's part of it. It's much deeper because he was so common and he's calling himself the Messiah. And not only that, but it didn't take long for them as they reflected on the sermon. If, if Jesus says this scripture is being fulfilled right in this church service, this synagogue service, and he's the Messiah one in the story, then guess who we are in the story? We're the poor ones. We're the oppressed ones. It didn't take them long to put two and two together of what he was saying about them in that synagogue that day. They're not going to like that. They never liked that. The Jews didn't like that. We don't like that. The Gospel of John in John chapter 8. John chapter 8, Jesus, there's people, there's Jews that were actually following him. And Jesus says to these Jews that were following him or initially following him, he says, and it's supposed to be good news. The truth will set you free. And all of a sudden, boom, they turn on him. They turn on him a drop of his dime. You know what they said to him? We're not going to have that. We are Abraham's descendants and we have never been enslaved to anyone. We are Jews. We have our religion. Did they not have their religion? Where were they this Sabbath? These were the ones in the synagogue, not fishing. These were the religious ones at church. We're fine. Don't be probing our hearts. Don't be driving deep down. We have Abraham as our father. We're the good people you grew up with. Show us a little respect here, Jesus. We're your friends. We watched over you. Is this not Joseph's son? It's like the preacher Wilcox says, is this not Joseph's son? Listen to this. Quotes, and the answer is no. No, he says, a million times no. As the voices at the river had declared, as the voice at the river had declared, as the family tree had revealed, as the devil himself had admitted, this is the Son of God, in quotes. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Is this not Joseph's son? Make no mistake about it, brothers and sisters, their true response their hard heart was beginning to be exposed by their 
words. First words of amazement and then words of offense. And Jesus knows beyond the words, doesn't he? He sees down into the heart of man. He knew these people for 30 years and respected his humanity as well. And Jesus knows, and so he begins to do the real work of the Word of God and get the job of exposure done right. First, he exposes by their words. Secondly, Jesus, or we, are exposed by his truth. We're exposed by our words, and secondly, we are exposed by his truth. So Jesus opens up his mouth, he speaks the truth, and by speaking the truth, he is exposing deep down, he's exposing his friends, maybe even some of his family in Nazareth. I like what Pastor Lloyd Johnson says about Jesus speaking the truth. If Jesus is a physician, he must, as a good doctor, he must convince them that they are sick in order for them to take the medicine. But the problem is, Lloyd says, they are comfortable with their disease. So Jesus must, he must expose. He must expose their need or it is malpractice, in quotes. It's malpractice. And so Jesus is not trying to be right. He's not trying to be, just provoke them. He's trying to reveal their hearts. He's trying to expose their hearts here. And he does this by speaking the truth. And he speaks the truth, and you have an outline, in two Proverbs and two examples. Two Proverbs and two examples. The first proverb is this, physician, heal thyself. This is a proverb that the people in Nazareth are going to use on Jesus, and Jesus predicts it. He says in verse 23, and he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Well, what does Jesus mean when he says, you're going to say to me this little proverb, physician, heal yourself. What does he mean? Well, he's poking. He's exposing. He's pulling back their heart. And here's what he means, I think. He means this. We don't necessarily believe you, boy. Young man. You're just Jesus. Prove yourself to us. What we're hearing happening in Capernaum, show yourself. You're ordinary. You're Jesus. Show us something. The people are saying this about Jesus. We hear that what you're saying, you've told us that you're the Messiah, that you're going to heal our broken souls, but we know something about you. You're just the carpenter's son. You're just common. You're just ordinary. We see defects in you, so-called physician. You're just normal. You're just like us. Heal yourself first. Prove yourself to us. A common young man like you, the fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah, prove yourself to us. You think the Messiah would come and be as ordinary and bland as you? 
You preach well, but you're Jesus. Prove yourself to us. And Jesus predicted this proverb that the people of Nazareth would quote to him. And so Jesus says, look, you got a proverb for me, I got a proverb for you. How would you like to debate Jesus? Look at the next verse. The second proverb is an unwelcome hometown prophet. An unwelcome hometown prophet. Verse 24, and he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. Jesus is making clear that he knows that he is being rejected, that he knows by their words that they are being exposed, that he's not welcome. And now their words have exposed them, but Jesus is now going to get the job done and Jesus is going to expose their hearts by his truth. And his truth here in no prophet is welcome, take a look at it, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. That's in verse 24, okay? The word for welcome there is the same Greek word as in verse 19, the favorable year of the Lord. So no prophet is welcome in his hometown. And the same word is the favorable or welcome year of the Lord. Jesus is being very pointed here. It's very ironic. He's just declared that as he has come, that the acceptable year of the Lord has come. I'm here to save. It's opened. All that has been promised in the Old Testament, in the year of Jubilee, and the rest, and the hope, and the forgiveness is here in me. The acceptable day of the Lord. Isn't it ironic that the day of the Lord is acceptable, but to me, I'm not acceptable. That's pointed. It's a big problem, isn't it? Listen, it's a really acceptable concept, the gospel. Who doesn't like good news? Come on. Who doesn't want to live forever and have their shame and sin purged and have the guilt gone and have freedom? It's a really acceptable gospel. Who doesn't like it? But the problem is, is Jesus acceptable to the people? His person, his word, his demands, the call of the gospel. Answer, no. It's not acceptable then or now to expose the darkness of our hearts and to show people their true need for a Redeemer. It's not. Try it. It's not acceptable for those in Nazareth. It's not acceptable for those in Lakeville. It's not acceptable for those in Vienna, we got plenty, we're fine. Do not put us in the category of verses 18 and 19. Now you're getting nasty. So he gets very direct. After these Proverbs, he says, let, let me be direct. And so he goes from these two Proverbs as he is exposing these people's hearts by the truth. He goes to two examples then one of Elijah and one of the prophet Elisha. So first example he gives is an example in verse 25 
of Elijah and the Sidonian widow. Elijah and the Sidonian widow. Verse 25, but I say to you in truth, I say to you in truth, he says. He's exposing them by the truth. There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who, to a woman who was a widow. And remember, uh, Bob read this in our scripture reading. This account is found in 1 Kings chapter 17. And this account, again, is the prophet Elijah who crosses paths with, with a woman who, because of the famine, was, her and her son were about dead. And she's gathering up sticks and supplies to make one last meal, and then it's over. It's over. And Elijah's response is kind of incredible. First of all, what was asked of her is incredible. She didn't have anything, and now you've got to make the prophet a meal? Thanks much. That makes no sense. Look at, well, let me just read verse 13. I'll pick up that account that Bob read in 1 Kings 17. Then Elijah said to her, do not fear, go. Do as you have said. Gather, the, gather those materials for your, for your meal. But make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me. And afterward, you, you may make one for yourself and one for your son. You know what I would have said? You know what? Go take a hike. I'm eating my last meal. It doesn't make any sense. Except he's a prophet of the Lord. He speaks the word of God. Verse 14, For thus says the Lord God of Israel. Sound fairly prophetic? For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. Verse 15, so she went and did, so she went and did according to the word of Elijah, which was the word of the Lord. And she and he and her household ate for many days. Now what? I mean, take that, my last stuff, and make you a meal? I mean, that doesn't make sense. And this Gentile widow from the town of Sidon, which is not in Israel, it's actually the town where Jezebel is from. This Gentile woman, she was simply supposed to believe the word of the prophet, simply take him at his word. This is faith. This is faith in the bare word of God. I don't care how you feel. I don't care what the world says. Sometimes I don't care what makes sense with my circumstances. I 
trust the word of God. That is faith. It's a gift. It's spiritually praised. The Spirit's got to give it to you. It's not by feeling and smelling and your bank account and how you feel. It's faith that they needed that day in Nazareth. It's faith that they lacked. But not the widow. The widow was at the end of her resources. The widow was one of those and she knew it. She knew it. She was one of those in verse 18. She was poor in spirit and bondage, oppressed, needy, helpless, and hopeless at the end of her own resources. And she, in abject desperation and hopelessness, put her trust in the word of God through his prophet. No evidence. The evidence spoke contrary. That is faith. That is simple faith. That is Christianity. And that is what Jesus is trying to provoke people's need for him through the preaching of the word of God. He's trying to expose them. This is the true reason that the people of Nazareth and we reject Jesus Christ. Our hearts are self-righteous. Our hearts are proud. We don't see ourselves as needy, we're better than the next guy. I mean, we helped the old lady across the street. We've been very generous. Look at how much we've served all our lives. Who tell me I'm in this category? We're not willing to see our need. We're proud. And if we don't see ourselves as broken, we will never need to be restored by Jesus. If we don't see ourselves as drowning, we're, we're never going to know our need for rescue from the Savior. Pride and self-sufficiency is at the very heart of unbelief. And Jesus is hinting here as well in his mission that he will find faith outside of Israel. That this gospel of his will go to outcast Gentiles. And we'll see this theme picked up in the book of Luke again and again and again. So Jesus is exposing now through his truth, showing us our need to turn from our spiritual poverty and find the riches of forgiveness and righteousness in the finished work of Christ. And this is unfortunately, are you ready? This is the one thing that the people of Nazareth would not do. In fact, they're insulted by this. Just like in John 8, who do you think you are? We are Abraham's children. We've never been enslaved a day of our life. And this is the one thing that I would not do for 27 years. Admit that I needed him. Maybe this is where you're at thinking that you're good enough, that the works that you have done, the life that you have lived, when God weighs it out, he'll say, voila, close enough, come on in. It's a lie. You have nothing to offer before God because he demands perfection. And you're going to have to find perfection in the same place that we did in this man from Nazareth, in his cross work on Calvary, taking away all of your sins and the perfect life that he lived that he gives you by Faith, like the widow, 
And now Jesus gets nasty. I mean, I always thought, why we're going to throw him off the cliff? You'll see. You'll see. As he moved then to the second probing truth, as he moves to Elisha and the Syrian leper. In verse 27, the second example, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed. There it is, right? Israel, Israel's not receiving this. Israel is not receiving this. Going outside of Israel, none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Syria, the king of the north, had a particularly nasty past with Israel, Daniel chapter 11. That is a fighting thing to say. Syria, the enemy of Israel, is receiving mercy? Well, this is from 2 Kings 5, uh, 1 through 14. We've already read it. Remember, Naaman's not a Jew. He's a Gentile warrior. He's the commander of the Syrian army, the enemy of Israel. But the, and the king of Syria sent him, because he's valuable, to the prophet of Israel to be cured of leprosy. He sends him actually to the king, and the king gets panicked, thinking that it was some sort of ploy to undo Israel and to get them involved in a conflict. Prophet Elisha overhears this and sees him ripping his clothes and says, hold on a second, let me do something about this. Let me go to him. God's a merciful God. Let's go to him. Let me go to him. And so Elisha goes then to Naaman. He told Naaman to do something. Frankly, did it make sense? Ah, you see where we're going with this. Didn't make sense. In fact, it would be seen as stupid by Naaman. Wash seven times in, in the Jordan and I'll be cleansed. Why seven times? How would that work? And how did Naaman initially receive the truth like we did for 27 years? How? With pride. Let's pick it up and find out how he initially received the truth in verse 11. But Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord, his God, and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Give me a miracle here. Are not uh, Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? Now watch this. So he turned and went away in rage. How did the people of Nazareth respond? Same word, rage. They responded like Naaman did in rage. Then his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you have not done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? Now watch what Naaman does in verse 14. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. That is faith. Nathan, I mean, Naaman was what? Proud and self-sufficient. I'm the king. This is ridiculous. But God, in the day of his power, softened Naaman's heart. I don't know how. 
by his power, made him to see that he just needs to trust. He just needs to plunge himself and do what the prophet said and depend upon the bare word of God and in the mercy of God, the enemy of Israel, Daniel chapter 11, enemy of Israel, the king of the north, was saved that day by the grace of God. Isn't that amazing? He would not submit. He was filled with rage. But then he humbled himself. He knew that he was a Gentile outsider, an outcast leper, a despised and helpless and hopeless person, and he decided, I'm going to trust the word of God. And he was cleansed. These people in Nazareth did not want to have their heart exposed. They needed to see that they were not needing physical healing, that they were desperately sick due to their sin. They needed to see that they were poor in spirit, that they were in captive and bondage to sin, that they were blind, that they were, they were behaving with bl- spiritual blindness and unbelief. They needed to see that they were oppressed by demonic darkness and, and the web of lies, by the father of lies himself. They needed to see that Joseph's son standing before them was indeed the Messiah of old. They needed the truth. They needed the spirit to open up their eyes and to humble them so that they might re- believe. Repentance and faith, seeing your need and turning to the only one who could help but they were so filled with spiritual pride and self-righteousness and self-sufficiency, they would not believe the word of the hometown prophet like the widow had believed the word of the prophet, like Naaman had believed the word of the prophet. They would not believe the word of God through his prophet. The question I have for us, will we simply in simple faith, when our life is falling apart and, we, and obedience is going to cost us, might we not simply believe the word of the prophet and trust him? The prophet par excellence. <laughs> the prophet. Jesus. Well, one thing about truth, as Pastor Lloyd says, and he's right, he says this, truth cuts before it cures. Truth cuts before it cures. Jesus will expose our hearts initially through our words, and then he'll expose our hearts through his truth, and finally he will expose our hearts We are exposed here by our actions. He's going to expose us by our actions. Jesus is not interested in partial exposure through the truth. Think about that. He is going to drive this all the way home to where that when they reflect on their actions of that day, by God's grace, they will be fully exposed just how proud they were in his hometown of Nazareth. So finally, we are exposed by our actions. Look at verse 28. 
And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. The people who were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips just a few minutes before are now filled with rage. How mad were they? They were so mad that they, being in church, (laughs) in the synagogue, skipped the final song, skipped the benediction, and in mob violence, in some sort of self-righteous, law-abiding, false prophet kind of a way for sure, grouped together, herded Jesus out to the brow, and I heard that this was a pretty tall cliff in Nazareth, that's why I want to go to Israel, and took him to that, and we're going to toss him off the cliff. Sorry, Mary and Joseph, he's got to go. I'll give you your rocking chair back. We are exposed by our actions, by our words, and then Jesus is going to prod through his truth to expose our hearts, but ultimately we are exposed by our actions. And that first heading there, if you'd like to take notes, that first heading is pushing off a cliff. And that's what they look to do. Look at verse 29, pushing off a cliff. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. I really can't, I try to wrap my mind around this. I think we can a little bit. I just have a hard time with it. They had grown up with this one. I mean, think about it. For 30 years they had known him, some of them. They knew him as a boy. And was Jesus a good boy, kids? Was Jesus a good boy? Did he ever steal any of their stuff? Uh, did he sin against any of the people in Nazareth? Uh, was he a good neighbor? Was he kind and winsome? It didn't matter. That's how hard the heart of man is. They tried to kill him in an act of mob violence. They're fully exposed. Now, Jesus allows this. Jesus is in control of this. Don't think he isn't. Jesus wants to go to his hometown to get the job done. What? Yes, the job of exposing them all the way to finish it out so there'd be no doubt of the darkness and pride of their hearts. Praise God that he did that to us. Showed us our need. And then praise God that in the day of his power, he changed us. That we saw ourselves as a miserable sinner and saw the glories of Christ. Praise God that he exposed us. I'm pretty sure he's in control because notice, secondly, passing through a crowd. Verse 30, but passing through their midst, he went his way. So Jesus is about to get thrown off a cliff. And all of a sudden, he's passing back through their midst. It reminds me of when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they come to uh, arrest Jesus, right, with the, in the darkness with their swords and their lanterns and their cohorts and their warriors. And Jesus is so funny. I, he's, I, I speak reverently in respect to his humanity. is super funny. Because Jesus says to them, whom do you seek? I think he knows. (laughs) 
Whom do you seek? And they answer him, Jesus the Nazarene. I think only so he could say this. Then he said to, the, then he said to them, I am the name of God. Ego me. And everybody falls down <laughs> on their back. And he stands there. He doesn't run. He knows his hour has come. They get back up, wipe themselves off. <laughs> he says to them, uh, uh, who do you seek again? I am. They fall down again just to prove his point. He gets up. He allows himself to be arrested for you and for me. I think there is a message as he turns and walks through their midst. I think it's a message that I pray that many in Nazareth years later would remember since their hearts were fully exposed that this one is more than a common, ordinary person. He is the Son of God. The Christ. The Messiah. Well, their hearts were fully exposed, and I sure hope some of them repented. But I'll tell you one thing about us and our lives. Our heart will ultimately be revealed by our hands. Actions do indeed speak louder than words. I don't care how amazed you are if you chuck Jesus off a cliff and put him on the shelf. And go your own way. Actions speak louder than words. Exposed, number one, by our words. Then we're exposed by his truth. And finally, we're exposed by our actions. What is the response to Jesus' first sermon? <laughs> well, getting chucked off a cliff. John the Baptist and Jesus knew when you confront people in their sin and try to expose it, it's not fun. Jesus almost got chucked off and eventually he hung naked, crucified on a Roman cross. John the Baptist's head rolled and ended up on a platter. Brothers and sisters, we are entering into the darkness. May we be bold with the truth like Jesus of old. The people wanted to see miracles, did they not? They wanted to see miracles. But I'm telling you, and I want you to listen carefully, the biggest miracle of all, and it's in your, in your notes, is the one implication here. I want to drive home. The real miracle, the other miracles were real, but I'm telling you, the real and penultimate, the ultimate miracle is seeing our own hearts. The ultimate miracle is seeing your own hearts. To be shown that you are indeed poor in spirit and in captive to your sin and enslaved to demonic lies and in love with this world and not willing to believe. To see that you indeed don't love Jesus and don't believe in his finished work. To, to, to see that to have that shown to you and then to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, that is to be born again <laughs> and to pass out of death to life is the greatest miracle 
of all. So that's the question I have for you here as we close. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Do you believe it or do you need more evidence? Kids, listen to me. Why are you all waiting? Why are we waiting to find life in Christ? Are we waiting till we have it all figured out? Are you waiting till you have the doctrine of hell and the doctrine of election all sorted out in your head? What are you waiting for? In the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, it wouldn't matter if a dead relative rose up out of the grave and said to you, it is real, turn to Jesus. It wouldn't matter. That's how dead we are and how hard our hearts are. In fact, in that passage, in the rich man and Lazarus, in that parable, they have Moses and the prophets let them hear them. No, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But Abraham said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. You don't need more evidence. You need faith. Faith is what we need. Simple faith. The question I have is, as we close, how are we going to respond to Jesus' first sermon? You don't have to have everything figured out before you come to Jesus. Did the widow have everything figured out when she made that meal? Did Naaman have it figured out when he dipped in that river? You need faith. It's time. Kids, listen to me, everybody. Today is the day. Today is the day you see it, who you are, and you put your trust in Christ. Simple faith. Believe in Him. He's here. The favorable day of the Lord is still open. He still calls. I'm here to save. He's not waiting. He's right here. He's real. Turn to Him and be saved today. Listen, don't let Him pass through your midst. Let me say that again. Don't let Him pass through your midst today. Receive him, for if the Son makes you free, you will, be in fr- you will be free indeed. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him, but as many as received him. To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 